Hope y'all are doing well. We are in the book of Acts. We're studying through the book of Acts. The sermon series is called Blueprint, but we are uh, <clears throat> in chapter 5 right now. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 5. Um, also, while you're turning, if you look underneath, you'll see one of these little cards here. It says connection card. If you could just fill this out and stick it in the offering plate. At the end of the service, we'll take up the offering. Uh, we just want to get as much information as you want to give us. We'll be able to tell you about our church and um, whatever kind of questions you have, just write it on there. We want to be able to help you out and serve you as best as we can. So fill that out. We are, as I said, in Acts chapter 5. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a weird text for sure and brings lots of questions. Uh, so I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in looking at, at Acts chapter 5. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy that you've given to us. I pray that as we look at this, at this text, um, that you'll, you'll help us understand community better. You'll help us understand generosity better. You'll help us understand what, what you want us as a church to look like and reflect. <clears throat> we pray, Lord, that as we, as we see the gospel implications this text brings, that we'll be amazed at the good news of Jesus and the gospel, that we've been saved and that we are declared righteous and that we don't have to earn our righteousness anymore. We don't have to perform, but instead we can just be honest about who we are. And the good news of the gospel is that we are forgiven by Christ. We pray that uh, you would come now. I pray for help this morning as I preach, that you would keep my mind focused and clear and that <clears throat> all the things that would be helpful and true and would glorify Christ, so I'd say those things. And, and otherwise, the, the things that wouldn't, that you would keep me from those. Help me always have a... a mindset of desperation when I preach and not be able to ever think that I can do this on my own, but instead I need your grace and I need the Holy Spirit. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this this text we're looking at is, is definitely a little different um, than what we've been seeing thus far in the book of Acts. So far, it's been on the whole, with, with the exception of chapter 4, where Peter and John were arrested, on the whole, there's been pretty positive stories. 3,000 people saved, 5,000 people saved. And here we're going to see a, a definite different kind of take. Now, for us to understand where we are in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, I want to reach up into chapter 4, something we looked at last week, and read that because I think it helps us understand. Now, last week, as I said, we were in chapter 4. We we're looking at verses 23 through 37, and we're seeing in that where the church is getting going and kind of materializing and whenever we see this church beginning, what are some of the aspects of the church or what are some of the mindsets that the church should have? If the church has these mindsets, then there'll be a kind of church that the Lord wants. I, I, the, the phrase I use is mindsets that make the church great, not for the church's glory because we don't want to be great for our own glory, but as we are great, as we are doing what we should do, it makes us operate and and um, be the kind of church that we should in order that Christ is known and Christ is known to be great to other people and they can come to know him. Those four things that we saw in the text last week were powerful prayer. You can see that they have powerful prayer starting in verse 23. It's the first thing they do when they get back. They started praying. <clears throat> bold evangelism. They actually prayed that they would be bold as evangelists, that the Lord would use them to spread the word. The next thing is that there's gospel unity. It said that they were of one heart and soul and that they were of one heart and soul in the main things and the gospel and last, which is really where we're going to kind of pick up in verses 32 through 37, you see radical generosity where they're willing to say, you have a need, you have a need. I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my, my own personal possessions. For them, it's land and houses. I'm going to sell that 
and I'm going to take the proceeds, and I'm going to take that money, and I'm going to give it to the apostles, and they're going to make sure everybody's needs are met. We read that in verse chapter 4. <coughs> read with me at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. No one said, this is my Nintendo, you can't use it. Or this is my lawnmower, you can't use it. Or this, these are my things. Instead, all the things were, obviously didn't have Nintendo. All, these are all our things, not mine. But every, they, they had everything in common. And with great power, this is the, the result of that when they live this way. The gospel itself goes forward in power. And it says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. And here it is. There was not a needy person among them. These were poor people. These weren't affluent, wealthy people. These were, these were poor people living this way. There was a needy person among them for as many as were owners of land or houses, sold them and bought the proceeds of what, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each that had need. Now they gave us this example and then they're going to give us an actual person here that does this. In verse 36, <coughs> We can see that Barnabas does that. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have this amazing example of Barnabas doing that very thing, being amazingly radically generous. And then as we go into this next text, which is, you know, very difficult, I think. The exact same kind of thing is going to happen. They're going to sell things in order to meet needs to bring at the apostles' feet. But unlike Barnabas, where he's willing to take the full amount and give it, they're going to withhold a little bit. So look at the text. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, so they both were in on it, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So let's be clear here. The, the sin that's going to take place and the, and the consequences therein are not because they didn't give all of the proceeds. The sin is that they were going to act like they gave all the proceeds. So, you know, they're going to give, let's just say, you know, 300 bucks. But they're going to say, we sold the land for 300 bucks. Here's all 300. But in actuality, they sold it for 400 or 500 or whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. So the sin here is not that they didn't give all, but they tried to make it look like they, they could have easily just said, we sold the land for 500, we're keeping 200, I'm taking my wife out to Sizzler tonight, here's the 300, and y'all can take this 300 and give it to all the needs of the poor, we're going to keep the other, and that would have been perfectly legit, like no one would have said anything, Peter wouldn't have said anything, so the problem was that they tried to make it look like they did what Barnabas did in the eyes of everybody, so they wanted to look greater than what they should, so <clears throat> we shouldn't take that and say, well... God wants everything or else I'm going to die like them. So here it is. Verse 3. That's, that's what happens. So we don't know how, but Peter knows what they've done. We, we just don't know how. The text doesn't tell us. Luke does not go into it. But Peter knows what's happened. Here it is. But Peter said to Ananias. So only Ananias is in the room whenever he comes and lays the money at the disciples' feet. Um, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, can you imagine in the moment here, Ananias is all jacked. We got the land. We're just like Barnabas. Bring it up to Peter. He's going to be so happy. I mean, it's Peter. Like, Peter's the man. Here's the money, Peter. And instead of, like, smiling and being like, oh, Ananias, come on, Annie, good job. Like, he looks at him and he just says, why has Satan filled your heart? Like, you can just feel that his, like, like the, everything just drops out. He knows he's busted. And he just... 
oh, can you imagine there? And, and, and to say it with such words like, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? It's not like, man, why are you holding back? But like, your offense is amazingly offensive. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? Again, not a bad thing to do if they had just been honest, but they weren't. They tried to make it look like they did exactly what Barnabas did. While it remained unsold, did not it remain your own? Like the land's always been yours. You could have done whatever you want. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have done whatever you want. All you had to do is just be honest about it. And then it says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now, this is just a little side note theologically, but you can see here. You have not lied to men, but to God. For those that want to know about the Trinity, all three persons being God. Previously, in verse 3, it says, you have filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Right here, so you have lied to God. Just... Side note, textual evidence that the Holy Spirit is God. Back to the text. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down. So Peter confronts him, and as soon as he confronted him, there was no second chance, there was nothing. It was, it's, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Literally, right then, God, God ended his life. Like, it was over. I mean, thank the Lord we don't have these kind of instant consequences when we lie right now. Or none of us would be here. Right? It would just be an empty building <laughs> and that no one would be here to preach. I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. None of us would be here. Anyway, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear. Now, we're going to hear that refrain again in verse 11. Great fear came upon all those who heard it. And, you know, what a great job these young men have. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That would be a stink job. I wouldn't want that job. Now, after that, after about three hours, wife's all like, you know, where's Annie? He didn't come back and can't find him anywhere. He didn't come home for dinner. I had a nice little sizzler on the night plan. We're supposed to go out. I got my good earrings on. Don't know where he is. She's walking up to Peter. You know, at the end of about three hours, wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Did you really sell it for 300? Yep, we sold it for 300. And she didn't, she wasn't honest. Yes, um, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Again, likely the same thing. Heart kind of sinks. Now, this next phrase is even more daunting. Imagine being told this. Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And then all of a sudden she dies. I mean, that's, that's scary stuff right there. Immediately she fell down and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And then again, same kind of mantra, if you see it right there at the end of verse 5, and great fear came upon those who heard it, right here again, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So this is like the, the reality sets in of life is, is tough. What's going to happen? So as, as we were looking at, as, as I was looking at this text, um, actually with Jordan over the week, we were talking about, man, what a, what a tough text and you can go a lot of different ways with this. Jordan had a brilliant idea, uh, which is instead of saying, here's all the negative things happen and you don't want to be a, a person that needs to repent or you need to be a person that needs to repent, which, which is, I think, a good way. It made me think of um, the sin of Achan in a lot of ways as I was looking at this particular text uh, from Joshua 7. I think a better way maybe to look at this is that there's, there's things that they did that were wrong. So let's look at the text and what we're going to see are as we saw the negative aspects of Ananias and Sapphira's story, we're going to pull out and state them positively and say, here's three things the Lord desires to see in his community. Now, the first negative aspect we see is they totally don't find their joy in God. They totally find them, their, their ultimate joy in themselves. 
So if we state that positively, the, the first description of the community God desires is that they find their joy in God. They find their joy in God. And as and Sapphira did not do that. They saw what happened to Barnabas. They really wanted that. And here we see, <clears throat> this is kind of the crux of the issue for, for Ananias and Sapphira, is they don't find their joy in God, but instead they find their joy in looking good in front of other people. And it drives them literally to lie to God, as it says in verse 4. You have lied to God. People are willing to lie to God. I mean, this is a pretty big issue. It's not like you can't lie to God. Like he already knows. And they're willing to do that in front of everybody. They're not finding their ultimate joy in him. Instead, their ultimate joy is in themselves, wanting to look good in front of other people. Their ultimate hope, their ultimate satisfaction isn't resting in God and God alone. Instead, they need to look good in front of this particular community and needed that community to think, they're just awesome. Oh, Annie and Saf, they're awesome. Aren't they amazing? But that's not what finding our ultimate joy in God rests in, not being awesome in front of other people. Instead, finding our hope and joy in God and God alone. Piper, looking at this text, says there's two effects that happens to the believer of Jesus. So whenever we put our faith in Christ, whenever we become a believer in Jesus, two effects happen to us. First is there's a loosening of our love for stuff and then a tightening of our love and our relationship with people. So we, we care less about having stuff and we care more about people and we care more about people. We don't want to look necessarily great in their eyes. We want to love them and care for them so that God is our ultimate hope. And so what happens here is there wasn't a rejoicing in God and God alone. And they weren't finding their satisfaction in him. Instead, because of their love for themselves, they wanted to look great in front of people. They wanted to create a scenario like had happened to Barnabas where everybody thought that they were awesome. And so as they see what happened to Barnabas and they try to reconstruct it, it backfires because you can't lie to God. And Perhaps the Holy Spirit just imparted this knowledge to Peter. Or perhaps just, you know, word travels with humans. We tend to, tend to be a little gossipy. But word got back to Peter and he knew and he confronted them. Um, and the Lord brought the ultimate consequence to them. And so as we get to this, before we go to, on to the next one, let's stop and ask this one question then. Where are we? So we say, where are you individually? And where are we as a church in regard to this? Are we... Are you finding your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate love in God and God alone? Or is it in how you look in front of other people? I mean, I, I, I am a, I'm a desperate man when it comes to this. I, I find my heart, I, I, thank Lord willing thus far, I don't do it out loud. But there's a lot of, a lot of times where I want to try to make myself look, myself look better to other people, especially when I'm around other church planners, you know, other church planners that are maybe doing it the same amount of time or maybe even a shorter amount of time. And you start talking about, Hey, how's your church going? What are you doing? What's going on there? Numbers of baptisms, numbers of whatever, whatever. It's, it's always in my heart as they tell me like, wow, to want to say, well, that's what you did. That's what I did. You know, it's just, it's easy to want to do that. And perhaps in your profession or your, you know, your line of work or your school or your roommate or whatever, you, you can feel that. And in that moment, <clears throat> we're wanting to look good in front of them or wanting the people to think we're awesome. And that's just, it's just not finding our joy, our ultimate satisfaction in God and what He thinks of us because of Christ, but instead needing the praise of men in order to feel satisfied. And so the community that God desires 
doesn't lean in on trying to look good in front of other people. We, we want to be you know, nice people. We want people to think well of us, but not over what God thinks of us. And that's what's going on here. And the gospel here indicts that wretched wickedness in my heart that wants to look good in front of men and comes and says, in your weakness, as you're trying to look good in front of others, you need to find your highest joy in God. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus comes and says, hey, you don't have to look good in front of other people. The gospel's not about trying harder. The gospel's not about doing better. The gospel's not about doing more. It's instead remembering that Christ has already declared you righteous completely. And you don't have to do anything. There's no work to be done. Instead, it's already all been done by Jesus. You need to trust in that and trust in him. Just like the first day you became a Christian, you need to trust in that even right now. Spurgeon says it this way. My dear friend, I am still, this is Spurgeon. I mean, Charles Spurgeon, thousands of people getting saved with him. Later on in his ministry, he looks at his, at his congregation and says, my dear friends, I am a, still a poor sinner now. I, I am a poor sinner, sinner still. And I have to look to Christ every day as I did the very first day. Now, I say this all the time when we talk about the gospel. Imagine the depth and the magnitude that an unbeliever has to look to Christ when they hear the gospel in order to be saved. Like the depth and magnitude that they need to trust Jesus in order to cross over from death to life. And he's saying, with that same depth, depth and with that same magnitude even now later on in life as a sinner I still have to look to Christ with the same trust and the same magnitude so this first thing indicts us in our desire to want to find joy in others and says you don't need to do that the community that God desires always seeks to find their highest joy in God in Christ not in themselves now if finding our highest joy uh, is the crux of the issue for Ananias and Sapphira. Um, the way they go about not doing that is something that we need to key on. What happened is they hide that by not being honest. They, they have a chance to be honest, and it would have been perfectly fine. Like, all they had to say is, we sold it for, you know, whatever, and we're going to keep a little bit for ourselves. We, we don't want to, but we're just, we, we have to have a little bit of control, this it's just maybe it's a gospel issue for us. We, we don't trust Jesus as much as we should. Or maybe we have our own needs that we need to do. And it's not necessarily a sinful reason. We just need to have this to buy some more, you know, robes and sandals or whatever. And so we're going to take this amount and we're going to give this to, to the church. And the apostles, we want the apostles to meet needs. That would have been perfectly legit. That's not what they did. They tried to make themselves look better. Um, one commentator, Hughes, said that Ananias and Sapphira were practicing pious pretense. They were a religious sham. They had simulated holiness and that they were Christian frauds. So they weren't honest. And this dishonesty literally cost their life. It literally cost their life. So faking your faith is a very, especially in front of God, is a very fearful thing. We don't need to be fakes. Instead, we need to be completely and totally honest. Completely and totally honest. So the first description of the community that God desires is that we find our highest joy in God. Here they're dishonest. And so if we're going to state it positively. The second description that God desires in the community is this. Is that we are learning to be completely honest. We're learning to be honest. We're learning to be completely honest. And 
this isn't just about, you know, obeying the Ten Commandments. Because God says you're not supposed to bear false witness. You've got to obey God. So just be honest. It's, it's, it's much deeper than that. This is actually a tremendous gospel issue for them and for us. If we apply this to our everyday life, this is a huge gospel issue. We don't have to fear in our community, especially when we know people and love people and feel much more comfortable. We don't have to fear being honest. The gospel confronts us and says, it's way better for you to be completely honest about who you are and not be fake. The gospel meets us at our absolute worst, reveals to us just how sinful we are. And after we see this, we realize that we are broken women, that we are broken men. And we need for Christ to come and put us back together through the process of sanctification. Forgive us all of our sin immediately and through the process of sanctification, put us all back together. The good news of Jesus is that we don't have to be fakes anymore. The good news of Jesus is that we can be completely honest, that we are messed up people. And so here they had the opportunity to be honest about who they were and they didn't take it. Instead, they were being fake. We can freely admit that who we are are beggars in need of daily bread. Whenever I was in college, this was, gosh, I'm showing my age, like 1997, um, a Christian group came. I was at CSU at the time. I was at uh, University of South Carolina, transferred, go Gamecocks, to Charleston Southern. And whenever I was there, um, this Christian group came. And whenever they came, um, this, I, it's stuck in my head. It was in so impact, impactful for me. For 20 years ago, the, the, the singer stood up you know, between songs and he said, I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I, I absolutely disagreed with him when he said it. He said, the best thing that could happen to you, the best thing that could happen to you is that all the worst things about you, your worst sins were on the five o'clock news that everybody in the city knew. Everybody knew. Because then you got nothing to hide. I'm like, that sounds terrible. No way that's good. But then, like he's saying, but once everybody knows... That's me. You have nothing to hide anymore. You have no reason to be fake. And just imagine, just imagine your head being that free to finally say, well, they know who I am now. And the gospel has cleansed me from all of that. I can be totally real. I've got nothing to fake anymore. That's what's happening here. That's why I say this is a gospel issue. Jesus destroys the performance mindset that makes us think that we have to pretend like we have it all together because we don't have it all together. None of us have it all together. Jesus has already forgiven everything. So all of our sin that we have, all the shame that we feel is all gone. We can be honest about it. We can get into a group of people. And I I know you can't do this right away. It's not like you can, hi strangers, here's all my stuff. I, I realize that no one does that, right? But as you're in a community group and you're growing together and you're serving together and you're doing mission together and you're caring for each other and you're loving for each other and you're praying with each other over the group of six, over a time of six months or eight months or whatever in a, in a time of a year, I'm telling you, you will eventually be able to say to them, hey, this is, I need to be honest. This is who I am. This is what I'm struggling with. I need for you to pray for me. And what they're going to do is not say, you know, like the old Jerry Seinfeld, good luck with all that. Hope that works out. No, I mean, instead it's like, yes, I will pray for you, for sure. And here, let me, let me tell you what's going on in my life. 
And let me remind you of the gospel, that all that stuff right there that you said, Christ has forgiven. And Christ is in the process of putting you back together right now. It's so freeing to finally be honest. Man, I'm telling you, it's the best thing in your life. Whenever you can look across from someone that you know loves Jesus, that you know trusts the gospel, and you can say, this is what's going on in my life. And I need for you to pray for me. And you're finally really being real with people. The community that God desires is one, that our highest joy is in Him, but also, secondly, is that we are finally being honest with people. No one in this church, and hopefully you'll see it nowhere in the Bible, no one is asking you to be Superman, to be Superwoman, to not have any problem. That's not Christianity. Every one of us is in desperate need of the gospel. And it spills over into the way we talk to our kids. So whenever I sin in front of my, and my job is to lead them, right? To teach them whenever you, and they do this all the time. You, you did like 25 things wrong all the time. Like, so my job is to lead them well and help them see those things. But I'm a sinner. And so I'll blow up sometimes like, ah, oh, what is wrong? And then I go to them and this is where the gospel frees me to not be fake. Where the gospel frees me to not feel like I have to have it all together and say to Karis or Aiden or JC or whoever, you know what? Just as much as you need Jesus, for for what you've done. Daddy needs Jesus too because daddy's a sinner and I shouldn't have done that and I'm sorry. And it frees us to not have to be fakes anymore. Even in the way we raise our kids, our kids have to know that we need Jesus just as much as they do. That's the kind of community that God desires, that we're honest, that we are a mess and that we need Jesus and no one here is wearing a cape but that we need Christ. So the first one is that our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. The second one is that we are finally being honest. That point is so huge. I couldn't drive it down any more honest, any more than I possibly could, that we can finally be real and not fakes. The third one, which we touched on last week, that they had radical generosity. Um, it's, It's in this text, and so... I didn't want to neglect, even though it was in the sermon last time, I didn't want to neglect it and not put it in the sermon because it's in the text. So the third thing that we should see, the third uh, desire that, that God has for his community is that we're profoundly generous. I did use a different word instead of saying radical, I said profound, just to try to make it, you know, feel different. Good thesaurus, that they are profoundly generous. Now, I want to give you examples, and I've already read some of them, so far of these particular Christians who've been transformed by Jesus. Here's some examples of how they're profoundly generous. This is Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 44. It said, And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And what we just read also in Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32, we'll go to verse 30, uh, Go to verse 34, actually. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So they were, this early church, profoundly generous. Now, don't equate, don't do this, don't equate where you are to where they are and just think about, like, well, where they were in society and where I am, how can I do that? Remember, they were way more poor than we are. 
even for you who are in college and you got to eat ramen noodles every every day and like man i'm so hungry all the time i don't ever have enough food you still are far more wealthy than they are far more wealthy and consider the profound generosity that these these people had no one here will have a need that's what their mindset said so let's be clear here. When we're talking about Ananias and Sapphira, what they did is they didn't practice radical, profound generosity. Instead, they wanted to withhold some. They, all they had to do is just tell, some, tell them, we're going to hold it back. The problem is that they tried to appear that they looked profoundly generous, but they were actually just being deceitful. They weren't being profoundly generous. So I, I was racking my brain all this week trying to think, like, I want to give a I want to give an illustration of radical generosity, profound generosity. I've been racking my brain trying to think of stuff. And while I was at camp this week uh, with our, our boys, I was talking to Jack. He's, he's one of the elders here. Um, I was talking about, you know, as all elders do, every time we're standing around talking, we always talk about sermons. We don't think about anything. I'm just kidding. So we were actually in that moment talking about sermons and we're talking about preaching. And we're talking about actually illustrations in sermons. I was like, you know... We both kind of came to the conclusion that using kind of personal illustrations in a 45-minute stretch, we try to do less of. So if I, if I end up with a, like a 10-minute illustration about me and doing something, you know, whenever, you know, whenever I preach in 45 minutes, 55 minutes, whenever I preach. So like um, if I do that, then that means I only get 40 minutes or 30 minutes to talk about Jesus because I talked about 15 minutes of, you know, whatever I did. So the best thing is if I shorten down my illustration time, I get to talk about Jesus more. And since I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, like it's sufficient to do all it needs to do to change our lives, then if I can talk about me less and talk about Jesus more, that's good. So that's as we're talking about illustrations, like I don't really like to do too many because it means I take up time and I'm breaking my rule right now. So ignore that part. But as we were talking, Jack said, he just said this. He goes, uh... And I just try to use illustrations from the Bible. Jesus told stories, so I just try to tell Jesus' stories. I'm like, that's a great idea. And so, racking my brain, how profound. Use the Bible, fun. Um, so, so anyway, um, <laughs> as I'm racking my brain trying to think of radical generosity, I just think, I'm use the Bible. There's a great story in the Bible of radical generosity. So, I just want to read you one story. I know you've probably heard it a billion times if you've grown up in church. But listen to this story. This is Luke 21, so I'm, I'm staying in Luke um, he wrote Luke and Acts. In Luke chapter 21, here's a story of <clears throat> a widow. It's called the, the story of the widow's offering. It's really short. It's only four verses. It says this. So Jesus was standing there whenever people were coming to give with his disciples. And it says, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. So the way the rich would come, they'd, they'd bring their big heavy change, you know, and it's like the, the guy at the arcade store. Well, y'all don't know that. It's in the 80s. But like they had, he had all his change and they'd put it in the bucket and they'd lift it up as high as possible. You know, I want to get my arms as high so I can drop it. And it's like, crash, da, 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 da. and so like everybody's like, whoa, look at those people giving all kinds of money, right? You hear that change? Like we all heard it. So Jesus is watching this, you know, because they, they literally practice giving in front of everybody and tried to make loud change like sounds so that everybody knew mm, look at that guy he's rich can you imagine doing that but that's that's what they did so jesus is watching this spectacle take place where the rich are get, putting their gifts in the offering box all loud so everybody is giving really loud in verse two it says and then he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins now the widow is important the primary way for families to make money was through the, through the husband. So we have a widow here. So we automatically know, you know, 
she's not like loaded. She's extremely poor. She's extremely poor. As a matter of fact, it says she puts in two copper coins. One of these coins, if you look at the footnote, is worth one out of 128 of a day's wage. It would take 128 of these coins to have one day's wage. One day. One denarii. And she has two coins, and each of them are worth one out of 128 of a day's wage. It's virtually nothing. She puts those in. And she's a widow. She's got no, like, backup plan. She's got no means coming. So picture this. The really rich people throwing in huge amounts of money, making sure everybody sees and hears it. But likely not all. Poor, not making a spectacle of herself. Because back then it was about how much you put in and how loud, not the little bit. She comes in, puts in two little small copper coins. Jesus, who knows everything, sees all things, takes this as a great teaching point to his disciples. And he says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. So, mathematically, that's not true, right? So he's not, he's not talking about, like, if you add it all up, because she obviously hadn't come in true. So Jesus is talking about percentages, right? Percentage-wise, if you add all those up, they're probably giving 10, 15, maybe 20-something percent. She's giving 100. So she's trusting way more. But I don't think it's just monetary, what, she, what Jesus is even referring to here. She's giving more than them. And it's not just monetary. We're talking about her heart and her trust that she has. She's willing to trust God enough to say, I'm going to give all of this. So this applies for all of us. Maybe we're like the rich where, you know, if we think about the amount of money we have, or maybe for the college people, the amount of money we have, like there's, there's the Lord calls us to be givers. He calls us to be radical, profound, generous people. And so there's, when we take that amount, there's a place where it's like, okay, that's easy. That's easy. Mm, that's hard. That requires faith. If I get to that place, that's faith. Like, easy, easy, easy. Mm, hard faith. If I get there, if I give that amount, that's going to require faith. And I think the point is, when it says, she gave more than all them, she got out of the easy, okay, kind of hard, faith. It's, if I give this amount, then I don't know how I'm going to be able to do that. Like, I have kids I need to take care of. It's not, it's not like irresponsible. I'm giving this and here you go, God. I'm going to live out the street for you. <laughs> like, not even take care of my kids. They can, they can work. They're only three, but they have hands. Like, it's not like that, right? Um, it's faith. Uh, it's difficult, easy, hard. That's, if I give that amount, that's faith. Like, that's difficult for me. I think that's where the Lord wants us. And that's where she was. That's profound generosity. It's radical. So for us all, when we're thinking about the kind of community that gospel wants, that, that, that God wants, the kind of the gospel community that he desires, he wants us to operate in faith. Like, God, if I give this amount, this is, this is the way Christy and I each year try to schedule out our, our giving. So every year we, we, get, we up our percentage and we're like, what's the percentage that if we up to, like easy, easy, that's going to take faith. That's what we're going to do for the year. Add that up, divide it by 52, and give the same amount every single week. That's the way we try to do it. I'm trying to hold myself out as awesome. I'm just saying, 
I think that that's what the Lord would have us do. Operate on a level of faith when it comes to being generous. Now, if you're a member of a local church, you want to give some of that, but there's, there's other ways you can do it. You can find your neighbor and meet that need. You can, like, he wants you to know and live in such a way like this lady. I'm giving out of faith here. And when I do, I'm going to be amazed at the way that the Lord does provide. I mean, there's, I'm not lying. This is, this is not a lie. I have had in my mailbox several times a cashier's check for like $600. Like we have something happening or a missionary we want to support or we're up in our ante and we know the Lord's going to push us and we just, okay, Lord, we're going to give it. And within weeks, a cashier's check, completely anonymous. I have no idea. This has not happened just once. This happened several times. And I'll call the bank. Who gave this? I want to know. Like, how did this happen? We can't tell you. Sorry, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the way it is. Like, Christy, can you believe this? Like, it's just God, and this is the way it works. When we, it's not like I heard someone that happened to somebody. Like, this has happened to me personally. More than once, the Lord is faithful. He wants us to give to the level where we say, I'm going to do this, Lord. It's going to be trust. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. And sometimes it doesn't mean you're going to get back money. Sometimes it just means the level of trust that you're operating in is going to increase and you get the blessing of trusting in the Lord more. And that in itself is great. And then notice what he says. She's put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, I'm not saying you got to give everything you have. I'm not saying that. Don't hear that. But what I am saying is this. Let's all stop and take kind of one giant mental step back and just reflect on this. Where is the Lord? Where is he challenging us in regard to being this kind of community that's radical, that's profound in our generosity? Who are the people around you in your neighborhood or in your city or in your community group or in your church or at your job? or whatever, that maybe you could bless. Maybe you could give a gift to. Maybe you could meet their needs. I'm not asking you to be run over by people, but you don't know. You just don't know. I do know that whenever I read in the book of Acts, in verses 32 through 37 of chapter 4, when there's a climate of generosity and people's needs being met, if you zero in on the middle of that text, verse 33, with in that particular climate is where the gospel goes forth and people are telling people about Jesus and people are getting saved. In that climate, it says in verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. Mega grace was upon them. And so they were in this particular climate preaching the gospel all over the place. When you're that kind of generous with people, people generally don't say, oh, thanks, and I don't want to know why, but thank you. They generally are like, why are you doing that? Nope, I don't know people that do that. And you have an awesome opportunity to tell them about Christ. So I think the right way to read Acts chapter 5 is to look at Barnabas and look at Ananias and Sapphira and see the contrast between the two. And Barnabas, unlike Ananias and Sapphira, Barnabas was profoundly generous. 
he sold a field and he laid it all at the apostles' feet. And he found great joy in what his gift could do for the kingdom and for the glory of God and for the helping of that particular church in that time. So he was profoundly generous. And unlike Ananias and Sapphira, Barnabas was honest. He loved the truth. He said, this is what I sold it for, and this is what it is. He loved the truth. He could be trusted. As a matter of fact, if you read through the rest of the book of Acts and all in church history, his integrity was legendary in the early church. He was an honest guy. And unlike Ananias and Sapphira, Barnabas found his joy in God, not in what people thought about him. I don't think Barnabas did it just so people would be like, have y'all met Barnabas? That dude's awesome. He did it because he loved the Lord. His highest joy was in God. He didn't love money. He didn't love things. He didn't love the praise of man. His joy was in God. Now, before we become idolaters, let's not lift too high the name of Barnabas. Right? He was a sinner just like us. And so the point isn't Barnabas. The point is the man that changed Barnabas. It's Jesus. Barnabas had been changed by Jesus, and that changed everything for him. He was now willing to give everything. He was willing to give everything. So as we look at the community that God desires, you see him coming and all, all these people laying the, the gifts at the apostles' feet, which isn't worshiping the apostles. I think the symbolic as laying it all at the Savior's feet, laying it all at Jesus' feet. So as we see that, let's, let's reflect and say, Jesus is asking this today. Are you willing to come and give him everything and lay it at the Savior's feet? Not financially, your life. Are you willing to give your life and say, I'm willing to give you everything? Are you willing to be profoundly generous to people around you for the gospel, for the glory of Jesus, and lay it at the Savior's feet? I want to be generous. Are you willing to give him everything and be honest with your community? I don't have to be a fake anymore. Instead, I can come and lay at the disciples' feet and say, because of the gospel, all this mess that I am is forgiven. And I can tell people that, and they can see that honesty, and they can see that that's what Jesus is, and they can do the same thing, and they can be forgiven, and they can come to know Christ. Are we willing to be honest people and lay it at the Savior's feet? Are we willing to find our highest joy, not in man, not in the praise of man, but instead in God? God alone. Laying it at the Savior's feet saying, I want to find my highest joy in you. Let's trust Him fully and give Him everything. We have a moment here to worship and do that and as we go, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you'll be with us now in our time of worship, that we would give you the glory you deserve during this worship time. And as we leave, Lord, that we would be the community that Jesus desires that we would find our highest joy in you and you alone. God, that we would be honest, that we wouldn't have to be fake. We wouldn't need to try to fake piety, but realize admitting that we're a mess is exactly what, exactly where you want us to be. Because it's then where people can see the gospel's real. And God, that we need to be profoundly generous. Help us be generous to the people around us. Just like the widow. Just like Barnabas. But ultimately, just like Christ. 
who practiced generosity more than anyone, though he was completely innocent, gave his entire life as the payment for sin so that we could be forgiven. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus.